0: chapter 1. Maybe you've seen it. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was a film that was released in 1967. Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn play a white suburban couple whose adult daughter comes home for dinner one night with her fiancé. Her groom-to-be is played by Sidney Poitier. The daughter conveniently leaves out the detail that her boyfriend is a black man. Now realize, at the beginning of 1967, interracial marriage was illegal in America, in 17 states. In June of 1967, the Supreme Court struck down the discriminatory law. The film was released in December of that same year. Needless to say, the romantic comedy hit a nerve. The movie dealt with prejudice and racism in America, and not just among whites, but blacks as well. For in the film, both the girl and the guy kept their marriage plans a secret and surprised their parents. Their choice was a surprise to both families. Well, tonight we have a surprise for the family of God, something unexpected. This is why we should call the book of Zephaniah, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner?, Realize, of the 40 or so authors inspired by God's Spirit to pen the Bible, only one was Caucasian, only one, a Greek man named Luke. Everyone else was Jewish. But I believe one of the authors was an Ethiopian Jew, a black-skinned man, and that was Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Of all the minor prophets, Zephaniah gives us the most detail about his background and his pedigree. He begins in verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. King Josiah reigned 31 years From 641 to 609 B.C., he was the last godly king to sit on the throne of Judah. Recall Josiah was the boy king. He took the throne at eight years old. Imagine our country ruled by a third grader. Hear ye, hear ye, video games for everyone. Ice cream throughout the land. The major health care reform would be free chewable vitamins. Actually, 2 Chronicles chapter 34 says of Josiah, In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. Notice that phrase, while he was still young. Josiah's eight year made him 16 years old. When most adolescent males start bucking authority, start sowing their wild oats, Josiah decides to get serious about his relationship with God. Why waste time? Why waste the best years of his life on sin and reckless living? He wants to be a prime time Christian. He wants to give God the prime of his life. You know, a lot of teenagers, they sow their wild oats, then spend their 20s and 30s pulling weeds. They have to live through some of the pain that they cause. They try to straighten out the consequences of their sin and their mistakes. Josiah, though, decided to sow good seed and enjoy an early harvest. It's probable that Zephaniah was an influence on the early life of King Josiah. Perhaps he paved the way for the revival that Josiah launched to turn the Jews back to God. Zephaniah's prophecy warns Judah of God's coming judgment. The immediate threat was the Babylonian Empire spreading westward across the Fertile Crescent. Judah needed to repent and return to God or face his judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. Sadly, Josiah's revival didn't last long. The king died and Judah resumed her wicked ways. The dire warnings of Zephaniah came to pass. Notice in verse 1, Zephaniah traces his genealogy to the fourth generation. This has caused scholars to wonder why. And there are different ideas as to his motive. But I like the theory advanced by Walter Kaiser in his commentary on Zephaniah. Notice the prophet's father was named Cushai. Cush is the Hebrew name for the country of Ethiopia. And it's possible that Zephaniah was a black-skinned Jew from Ethiopia. To this day, there is a large contingent of black Jews living in Africa. For centuries, these Jews were cut off from the rest of the world. In the 18th century AD, explorer James Bruce found a tribe of these Jews living along the Blue Nile in Ethiopia. This tribe called themselves Beta Israel, or the House of Israel. Today, European Israelis call them Falasha, which means foreigner. It's a derogatory term, really. If you meet a black Jew in Jerusalem, don't call him Falasha, Falasha say that he's from Beta Israel, or the house of Israel. Now, it's interesting, upon initial contact with the rest of Jewry, these Ethiopian Jews were surprised that all Jews weren't dark skinned. Actually, their form of Judaism is closer to the Bible than the Judaism of white European Jews. These Ethiopians, they lack the rabbinical traditions of European Judaism. They have no rabbis. In fact, their leaders are priests who claim to be descendants of Aaron. As to their origins and how they got to Africa, we're not sure. In Acts chapter 8, Philip preached the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch who had visited Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. He obviously was Jewish. That indicates that there were some African Jews in Ethiopia during the first century AD. Solomon, remember, married 1,000 women many of them daughters of neighboring kings. You would think there was probably an Ethiopian princess in his harem. Maybe her offspring went back home to Africa. Some Bible scholars suggest that the Ethiopian Jews are descendants of Moses and his Cushite, or Ethiopian wife, who was obviously a dark-skinned woman. Numbers 12 recounts the story. Moses' siblings Miriam and Aaron opposed the marriage between their brother and their new sister-in-law. They were against interracial marriage, and they tried to fire Moses as leader of Israel. Yet it didn't take long for God to settle the disagreement. Numbers chapter 12 tells us, So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them. Suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow. God struck Moses' prejudiced sister Miriam with the dreaded flesh-eating disease of the ancient world, leprosy. Apparently, Miriam had a problem with the color of the woman's skin Moses was going to marry. Now she's got a problem with her own skin, but its pigment is the least of her worries. Who cares about the shade of a person's skin now? What a superficial distinction. Remember what God told Samuel, "'For the Lord does not see as man sees.'" For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is why the Bible says nothing to prohibit interracial marriage. To the contrary, God works over time to abolish all racial distinctions. Galatians 3 tells us that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, we could add black or white. Today the only distinction that God sees between people is whether they're in Christ or outside of Christ. This is why a believer should never marry an unbeliever, but this has nothing to do with the color of a person's skin. It's almost humorous. After Miriam was struck with leprosy, it didn't take Aaron long to get the point. He sort of changed his opinion rather quickly. He figured he would be next. And so we find Aaron pleading with God, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Let me say it clearly, prejudice against another person's shade, their shade of skin is just shady. That's what it is. It's just downright sinful. And if you harbor even a little bit of that attitude, you need to repent. Now back to Zephaniah's four generations. Even in the law of Moses, God demonstrated his desire to bridge racial divides. In Egypt, there were interracial marriages between Egyptians and Hebrews. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 23, Moses instructs his people not to hate the Egyptians. Instead, he makes a way to turn them into Israelis. The Lord commands, you shall not abhor an Egyptian. Because you were an alien in his land, the children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Notice, third generation offspring became full citizens with full rights in the family of God. Perhaps that's the reason Zephaniah lists his genealogy to the fourth generation to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt his Jewish identity. Isn't that interesting? Well, regardless of his color, Zephaniah delivers a colorful message. It begins with a bang. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. The stumbling blocks were the idols that had caused Israel to fall, fall into sin. I will cut off man from the face of the land," says the Lord, "Welcome to destruction." In Genesis chapter one, God created beasts and birds and fish and man. Now He consumes them. It just goes to prove if God brings you in, then God can take you out." Commentator Jay Vernon McGee, he writes this of the Book of Zephaniah. He says, "This book is like a Florida hurricane, a Texas tornado a Mississippi River flood, a Minnesota snowstorm, and a California earthquake all rolled into one. And indeed it is. Zephaniah served a God who is serious about sin, a God who doesn't mind mincing words, or doesn't mince words. God doesn't mind saying it straight. God is not afraid to judge sin, as we'll soon find out. Verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. Now it's interesting, the word translated idolatrous is from an Assyrian word, which means to be black. It could be that these pagan priests were wearing long robes, sort of like Satanists do today, black robes. Or it could mean that Zephaniah was rebuking the heresy of fellow black Jews who had fallen into idolatry, Ethiopian priests. Either way, God will cut off those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. Apparently, some of these Israelis were into astrology. They were consulting the stars. God had forbidden that. And those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom or Molech, as he's often called. Molech is the false god of the Moabites and the Ammonites. The Hebrew word Molech was derived from Melech, which is Hebrew for king. The name Molech was formed by taking the three consonants in Melech, M, L, and K, and inserting into them the vowels found in the Hebrew word for shame. Thus, the name Molech, who was the king of the Moabites, was forever stigmatized as a shameful thing. Apparently, the black priests in Zephaniah's day had turned to this false god rather than call on the true God of Israel. And it's sad that the same mistake is being made by some young African Americans today. Today, the God of the Ammonites and the Moabites is Islam. And there are many young black men, especially, who are turning from the Christianity of their fathers to become Muslims. The founder of the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, was once Elijah Poole, the son of a Baptist pastor who raised his kids in the Christian faith. Islam appeals to oppressed minorities because it legitimizes hatred and sanctions violence. The Islamic principle of jihad encourages the use of force in conquest, whereas Christianity teaches its adherents to love their enemies. Conversion is always voluntary. Martin Luther King, Jr., Jr., the founder of the modern civil rights movement and a Christian pastor, taught that prejudice can only be overcome through love. He advocated peaceful, nonviolent resistance. Both the New Testament and Dr. King's teachings are the opposite of Islam. Remember the word moloch is formed by inserting the vowels of the word shame into the consonants of the word king or MLK, the Hebrew word king, MLK. And ironically, this is what's happened to sectors of the black community. Black Muslim teachings have corrupted the vision of Dr. King. Sadly, many African-Americans today now serve the false god, Allah, rather than the true God of Israel. And according to verse 6, God will cut off those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor acquired of him. At the time of Zephaniah, Israel had become a pluralistic society. All religions were viewed as equally true and beneficial. In fact, the Judean king, Manasseh, The worst of all the kings had been worshiping in Baal and Milcom, right there in the precincts of the temple. He had also delved into astrology and was worshiping the stars. The people had come to believe that no religion had a monopoly on the truth. No one religion was absolute. Sound familiar? I mean, that's exactly what's happening in America today. We no longer believe in an essential truth. Secular historian Edward Gibbon, in his classic work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he says that in the final throes of Rome, three things were true. All religions were regarded as equally true, the philosophers as equally false, and the magistrates as equally useful. These are the factors that are causing the crumbling of America today. Our failure to identify any objective truth allows for the proliferation of anything and everything. Our history gets rewritten, past wisdom is nullified, and politicians are used to advance the relativism. America has lost its moral bearings and is racing toward an anarchy. Notice verse 7, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. In Revelation 19 verse 21, John refers to this verse in Zephaniah. We're told that after the battle of Armageddon, all the birds will be filled with flesh. Scavengers will be invited to a feast on human carcasses. They'll be allowed to feed on the corpses of many casualties. God's judgment will produce a banquet fit for a vulture. Here he says that the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has invited his guests. Seven times in this prophecy, Zephaniah is going to use the phrase, the day of the Lord. This is the prophet's subject. The day of the Lord is the future time period that begins at the rapture of the church. It continues through the Great Tribulation, the Battle of Armageddon, the second coming of Jesus, and then his millennial kingdom. It's the time when the Lord intervenes in the affairs of man in the history of this world. Currently, man is having his say. Man is getting his way. Today is the day of man. But coming soon, God will have the final say. The day of the Lord will be upon us. And the day of the Lord will be a tumultuous time, according to the Bible. God consumes all things, Zephaniah says. When his judgment ceases, the world is littered with the corpses of men and beasts. Verse 8, And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. As proof of their compromise, the children of Israel had even dressed like their idolatrous neighbors. And it's sad when Christians feel like we have to dress ourselves in the attitudes and values of this world. Guys, we're called to be holy. That's different, not duplicate. He says, in the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. According to 1 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 5, leaping over the threshold was a practice that was involved in the worship of Dagon, the God of the Philistines. And so he's saying, stay away from idols. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, For all the merchant people are cut down, all those who handle money are cut off. In the Jerusalem of Zephaniah's day, the fish gate opened westward toward the sea, the Mediterranean. Maktesh was the business district, Jerusalem's Wall Street, you might say. Later, it'll be named the Triopian Valley. Josephus called it the Valley of the Cheesemakers. The point is is that when God judges his people in Jerusalem it's the business community that will be the hardest hit. Verse 12 and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency who say in their heart the Lord will not do good nor will he do evil. In other words the Lord will search through Jerusalem with a flashlight. He'll be on the lookout For what? For complacency. That's what he'll be searching for. He'll want to find the folks who have taken God for a paper tiger, who thought God was all bark and no bite and didn't take him seriously. Obviously, the true God is a tiger with teeth. He's on the prowl. He's ready to spring into action. But the Jews had grown lazy, and to assuage their conscience, they assume that God has gro- had grown as passive as they had. And this is what has happened to Christians today. We no longer assume God intervenes in situations or that he works miracles or that he brings judgment. Instead, we think of God as aloof and removed. We like to think that God has joined the status quo. It's sad, but today, complacency has gone to church. He says, therefore, their goods shall become booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. They'll plant these things. They'll build these things. But before they can inhabit their houses, the enemy will come into the land and take it from them. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter." There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Again, the day he's speaking of is the day the Babylonians are going to come in and sack Jerusalem. Of course, it also has ramifications for the last days, with the day of the Lord. He says, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Notice that phrase, because they have sinned against the Lord. Walter Kaiser, he writes of verse 17, this simple, casual clause summarizes the entire history of the world. They have sinned. Against the Lord. You want to know the source of our problems? There you have it. We've sinned against the Lord. Verse 18 neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Following Josiah's reign, this sums up Judah's history. The Jews went back and forth between Babylon and Egypt, buying the protection of these other nations. As it turns out, all their gold couldn't save them. You know, it's interesting, America has also relied on its gold, its money, to try to buy allies all around the world. Yet everywhere you go abroad today, America's hated. We too have trusted in our silver and gold rather than in God. Well, chapter 2 begins. Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O oh undesirable nation. And there's an intended barb buried here in verse 1. The Hebrew word nation is a derivative of the word Gohim or Gentile. God is saying that his Jews, his people have behaved no better than the godless. And he proves his point in the rest of the chapter as he judges the Gentile nations surrounding Jerusalem. He says, Before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Before he judges the nations, God extends to everyone the opportunity to repent and to be spared God's judgment. You know, repentance is a beautiful thing. I can't think of anything more lovely, more beautiful than someone who decides to turn their, to turn their life around, to get right with God. Hey, weakness or meekness is not weakness. Meekness is the strongest thing you can do. These are the folks wise enough to become humble. They come to God broken, not bucking. This is a beautiful thing. To accept God's harness, to let God steer our lives, it's foolish to arrogantly spit out the bit. It's been noted that every morning on the African plain, a gazelle wakes up. He or she knows that it'll have to run faster than the the fastest lion or be killed. And every morning that lion wakes up, and he knows that he or she will have to run faster than the slowest gazelle or be hungry. It doesn't matter if you're a gazelle or if you're a lion. When the sun comes up, you know you got to start running. And the same is true of us. Either we're running toward God or we're running from God. If you aren't seeking the Lord, then judgment is nipping at your heels. This is what Zephaniah is telling us. Compare Zephaniah 2 verse 3 with chapter 1 verse 12 that we read earlier. Either you and I are seeking the Lord in his righteousness or the Lord is seeking with his flashlight those who are complacent and those that he is going to punish because they've sinned against him. What are you seeking tonight? There's one more important point to be made here. The name Zephaniah, it means he whom the Lord hides. Here the prophet embeds his own name in this verse. He assures us, if you seek the Lord, you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. What a wonderful promise. There is an escape from this judgment. Hey, the next time you hear someone scoff at the biblical doctrine of the rapture, or say something like, hey, how come the rapture's never spoken of in the Old Testament? Ask them, have you ever read Zephaniah? The New Testament teaches that before God's judgment comes down, the church is going to go up. Prior to God pouring out his anger on this wicked world, he's going to move to protect or to hide his church from his anger, from his coming wrath. And this is the promise in Zephaniah 2 verse 3. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Zephaniah means whom the Lord hides. Hey, at the rapture, we're all going to be Zephaniathized. We're going to be hidden from the Lord's anger. Verse 4, For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you So there shall be no inhabitant. In the remainder of the chapter, Zephaniah announces judgment on the nations surrounding the Jews. And first here, he points to the Philistines. He points west toward the Philistines, the cities of the Philistines. He's going to point east to the Moabites and Ammonites, south to the Ethiopians, and then north to the Assyrians. He says, the seacoast shall be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks, The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there. In the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. When today's Israelis read this verse, it creates a great conflict in their hearts. The coast shall be for the remnant of Judah. That's what the Bible says. Today, the seacoast is the Gaza Strip. And the Jews have relinquished Gaza to the Palestinians. In an attempt at peace, they've given up what God had given to them. In God's time, though, according to Zephaniah, he's going to restore the Gaza Strip to Israel. The Jews will again feed their flocks in the pastures of Gaza. He says, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon. With which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Notice the argument. The beef God has with Moab and Ammon is over borders. Notice that. Today, their descendants, the descendants of Moab and Ammon, the Jordanians, are still making arrogant threats against their borders. The Arabs are still demanding that the Israeli abandon the land that. God gave them in return to their pre-1967 UN borders. Again, the squabble in the Middle East is still over borders. And yet God has defined the borders. Verse 9, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom, and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Eventually, Israel will add the lands of both her enemies, Moab and Ammon, or modern-day Jordan. This they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome to them. He will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations." You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation, a dry, as dry as the wilderness. The herd shall lie down in her midst. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge on the capitals of her pillars. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. We learned last week from Nahum's prophecy that Nineveh and Assyria would be destroyed because of her sin against God. Verse 15, this is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. A hissing sound, shaking of the fist. These are oriental insults. Middle Eastern equivalent of booing the umpire, or maybe giving somebody the thumbs down sign. Notice Assyria's pride here, Nineveh's pride. She boasted, I am it. I know a lot of people who think they're it. They're not. God is it. That's what Zephaniah says. Chapter three, woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. This is the city of Jerusalem he begins to talk about. He calls her a betrayer, a blasphemer, a bully. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. These are major indictments. Her princes, that is her politicians in her midst are roaring lions Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. I mean, when the judiciary judiciary is preying on people, all hope for justice is lost. Jerusalem's princes and her judges had become corrupt. As had her clergy, the prophets and the priests, verse 4. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. It's sad when the pastors no longer fear God or serve the Lord. The priests were treacherous. In other words, they had no integrity. They had no scruples. To them, the ends justified the means. The priests polluted the things of God. They watered down the truth. And I think this has happened today. It's sad when pastors are more concerned with getting people back to church than they are getting them to heaven. It's sad. Churches are preaching easy believism today. Commitment has been stripped of its teeth. Every Sunday, the truth gets sacrificed on the altar of relevance and convenience. Yet verse 5 declares, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning, he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame knows God is consistently faithful, whereas certain people are incurably faithless. I have cut off nations, their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. there is no one, no inhabitant. I said, "Surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her." But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. In other words, after witnessing God's terrible judgments on Israel's Gentile neighbors, you would think the Jews would have learned to fear the Lord. But like the proverbial ostrich, she just stuck her head in the sands of self-denial and self-deception. You'd think today's America would also learn from history. At the end of World War II, English historian Herbert Butterfield, noting the fall of Nazi Germany as well as events like the horrors of the French Revolution and the collapse of ancient Rome, he made this statement. He said, there is a judgment embedded in the fabric of history. There is a judgment embedded in the fabric of history. Who can deny this? In other words, given years, over the centuries, there is a judgment that no evil nation can escape. In the years since, the collapse of the Soviet empire would be a good example. God does judge nations. Our sovereign God holds nations responsible for their sins. And yet today, if one of our national congressmen went public admonishing America to repent of its sin and said that he feared God's divine punishment on our nation, he'd be ridiculed out of office. Like Israel of old, we've learned nothing from history. Verse 8, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. You see it's all coming to an end. God, God has a day in mind, He has a place in mind where he's going to gather up all the nations and all His anger, and he's going to pour it out on the nations of this world. Book of Revelation gives us the time, and it gives us the place for this gathering, the time. At the end of Daniel's 70th week, the close of the Great Tribulation, the place, the plain of Estrelon, 55 miles north of Jerusalem, better known as the Valley of Armageddon. It's there. And then that God will gather the nations of the world for one final showdown. Zephaniah is a good example of what's true regarding many of the Old Testament prophecies. When you read these books, like Zephaniah, for example, I mean, you have to understand that most of the prophecies have an immediate fulfillment, and they also have a future fulfillment. The immediate threat in Zephaniah's day was the Babylonians. Yet notice here in verse 8, the prophet speaks of nations, plural, of kingdoms, plural. In fact, he says, All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Obviously, this prophecy's scope... Fits future events. At the end of the age, God is going to judge the whole earth. Here's how you want to read Old Testament prophecy Imagine yourself lying flat on your back underneath a big tall oak tree and looking up into its branches. You know, from your vantage point, it's difficult to tell which branches are on top of the others or the exact distance between the various branches. And this is how prophecy works. The Old Testament prophecies are layered. The immediate and the future fulfillments overlap in the text so often. And we can't really tell the distance between them. It's difficult to read, but it helps to have that perspective. Now notice verse 9. For then I will restore to the peoples, when when he gathers the nations together, the end of time, for then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. At the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages. But apparently, when Jesus returns at the end of the age, he'll reinstitute a universal language that will unite mankind and enable us to worship our Lord Jesus with one voice. And what is this global language? English with a southern accent, of course. It's got to be. Just kidding. Actually, some folks see in verse 9 a promise to restore ancient Hebrew and to make the Jewish language the global voice of all mankind. I could buy that. And if that's so, then this is a prophecy whose fulfillment is happening before our very eyes. For the restoration of the Jewish language in Israel today is nothing short of a modern miracle. Prior to this century, the Hebrew language had not been spoken since the 6th century B.C., around the time of Zephaniah, when the Jews were carried off to Babylon. When they returned to Jerusalem, they spoke the Aramaic that they had picked up in Babel. Only the religious scribes spoke Hebrew. The rabbis believed that Hebrew was too sacred to be used in ordinary conversation. Thus, it didn't take long for Hebrew to become a dead language. No one would speak it for the next 1900 years until the turn of the 20th century when Jews started returning to their homeland. They came back to Israel and to Jerusalem speaking a million different languages. Communication became a challenge to these Jews who were returning to their land. But there was one Jerusalem journalist, a man named Eleazar Ben Yehuda, who noticed the problem. And he made it his personal mission to revive ancient Hebrew. He started with a vocabulary of 7,700 words that he gleaned from the Bible. Today, modern Hebrew has grown to over 80,000 words. Hebrew is the only dead language in history that has been restored to daily use. It's really a marvelous miracle. In fact, in Israel today, Eleazar Ben Yehuda is a hero. In fact, the main drag in Jerusalem is called Ben Yehuda Street. Go to Israel, listen to the conversation, and you'll see the fulfillment of Zephaniah's 2,500-year-old prophecy. Truly amazing. And here's another future prophecy, verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Zephaniah, the Ethiopian Jew, here predicts a future return of Ethiopians to the land of Israel. And such an exodus has occurred in recent history. In fact, it's occurred more than once. In 1984, Israel launched a covert evacuation called Operation Moses. The Israeli military airlifted 8,000 Africans African Jews from war-torn Sudan and relocated them to Israel. A similar relocation occurred in 1991 when another 14,000 Ethiopians came home to Israel. Today, there is a sizable population of dark-skinned Ethiopian Jews living in Israel, as many as 125,000. It's just amazing. This future regathering was predicted by none other than the black prophet Zephaniah. Verse 11, in that day, you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Repentance, forgiveness will come to Israel. What a day that'll be. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. When the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom, a remnant of Israel will inhabit the land. This will be the Hebrews that will survive the terrible great tribulation. Their trials, though, will purify their hearts. Thus they'll become an example to all the nations. No one will lie. They'll tell the truth. Righteousness will reign. And then verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. What a promise. You remember when Jesus came into the world, the angel gave him a name? You remember what it was? Emmanuel which means God with us, or God in our midst. Notice what Zephaniah says, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. When Emmanuel came to Jerusalem, the first time they rejoiced, but then they turned against him. But he's coming back a second time. And this time he will be held as king again. Once again, the king of Israel, the Lord, will be in your midst sing o daughter of zion for the lord will cast out your enemy the king of israel the lord is in your midst what a wonderful prophecy the earth was honored once over 1900 years ago when god incarnate walked the surface of our planet but the earth will be honored a second time when he returns the king of israel the king of kings will dwell in our midst again In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. Hey, when will Israel finally be at peace? When she sits down at the negotiation table with the Palestinians and sorts this thing out? No. Peace will come to God's people when the prince of peace returns and casts out her enemies. And he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Can you imagine? Zephaniah starts out this prophecy cold and callous, it seems. God will consume the beast and the fish and the birds and the men. The prophecy begins rough and gruff, but it closes with one of the most tender passages in all of the Bible. Once judgment has ceased, once the sin has been punished, once God has revealed his love for his people, we're told that God will rejoice over you with singing. God will sing over his people. There'll be music and rejoicing from heaven. Like a doting dad, God will rejoice over you with music. Just the thought of you will cause God to see. It reminds me of the Stanley Cup. You know about this. It's the silver trophy that looks like a wedding cake. It's awarded every year to the winner of the National Hockey League. And when the trophy is awarded, the winning team and all the players, they take their turns holding it up, skating around the rink. While a triumphant song blasts from the PA system, it's obvious the source of their joy isn't the trophy itself. Watch how they manhandle it. I mean, they maul it with their taped up gruffy hands and they all kiss it and slobber all over it. I mean, it's obvious that they're not worried about smudging or staining or dinning the trophy. Everyone loves the Stanley Cup because it represents the hard work that went into their victory. And I think God sees us as his Stanley cup or his Sally cup or his Sandy cup. I like that one. And he's not worried about whether we're smudgeless or we're slobberless or we're stainless or we're dent free. His joy over us doesn't come from our perfections, but from what it took to win us. You and I are the prize in God's greatest achievement. We are the victorious spoils of the cross of Jesus Christ. And when I get to heaven, I expect Jesus to pick me up in his strong hands and skate me around the rink a couple of times to the cheers of the angels and the heavenly host and the Father who sent him and the Spirit who helped him. And even sing over me a song of rejoicing. That's what I'm expecting when I get to heaven. Jesus is waiting to hold up his sandy cup and rejoice over me. I believe he's going to rejoice over you the very same way. God is strong and just and righteous, and he does judge sin, but he doesn't rejoice in his judgment. That's not what pleasures God, that's not what tickles his fancy. God takes joy over people who have trusted in his son, Jesus. And then verse 18, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. Zephaniah is speaking of the Jews who had lived in exile, who were unable to worship at the temple because of some deformity, because of some uncleanness. He makes a point here of gathering them up and bringing them into the community as well. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. What a promise. Those who suffered emotional affliction, who were physically handicapped and outside of the camp, God will now gather up. They'll go from shame to fame. Verse 20, and at that time I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you. And I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. After the Jews, exiled, the Jews who were exiled in Babylon, after they returned to the land, this was fulfilled. But this will also be fulfilled at the end of the age. Here again, we have an immediate and a future fulfillment. For God will return Israel to their land that he promised them at the end of the age. Israel will be gathered. God will be glorified. And Zephaniah tells us, seek righteousness. Seek humility. Turn to the Lord. And what will he do? He will hide us from his anger. How do you escape the wrath of the Lord? By humbling yourself, repenting of your sin, turning to the Lord. And he will hide you from his anger. Seek the Lord. And you'll be Zephaniathized.